0: Thanks, brother. Well, Austin's dead on. Uh, he, he gave us the context, and that's exactly right. We're, as we're, watch, we're wa- marching, see if I can say that word, through 1 Corinthians, and we're nearing the end. Uh, but we're, we're in this bit where Paul's talking about what happens in the congregation when the congregation, when the people of God, the church, come together and worship the Lord. And he's talking about gifts in particular right now. He did in chapter 12. And he does again in chapter 14. But the Corinthian church is a really gifted church, but they're not, they're not loving one another. There's a lot of backbiting and bickering and hurting each other. And so he stops and he says, pursue the gifts. The, the Lord has, has given you, through his Holy Spirit, gifts to build one another up and to build his kingdom. So he doesn't say, hey, tone it down on the gifts. But he, he says actually the opposite. Pursue them eagerly. And we'll look at, we've looked at that and we'll look at it again next week and the next couple of weeks. But he pauses and says, let me show you a still more excellent way. That's the last verse in chapter 12. Let me show you a still more excellent way. And um, the point that Jonathan Edwards makes, the great uh, American, British American theologian who lived here in the colonies before we were a country, the point he makes in his exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter, um, it's called Charity and its Fruit, is that gifts are wonderful, they're necessary for us to be a body, and we ought to pursue them. But um, we have to pursue them eagerly. But he makes the same point that Jesus does almost even more strongly in Matthew 7, which is that you can be, I want you to get this, you can be a very gifted person. You can even walk in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says you can walk in miracles, prophecy, you can see people raised from the dead, and you can do that and not know God and go to hell. Gifts are not the measure of a Christian. Fruit is. And the greatest fruit, the one that heads the list, is love. All Everything else comes out of it, and everything converges and finds its place in it. Um, Jesus said, you will know them by their, not gifts, you will know them by their fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience. These things that come from inside, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. Not from within us first, but from outside, from the Lord himself. We'll, we'll talk for the rest of the sermon on that. So he says, he goes on to say, hey, apples don't, go for, don't grow from thorn bushes. You can never get an apple, apple from a thorn bush. No matter how hard the thorn bush tries, it has to be an apple tree. Apple trees produce apples. And so that's both very clear, but also it's going to present a problem for us, and I hope that we, I can show that clearly. Love grows from God. In fact, Jesus says something else. He says, you'll know them by their fruit, and the greatest fruit is love. So unless we are loving, we're missing everything. That's the whole point Paul makes. Unless we're loving, all the gifts are worthless. But Jesus also says, if you want to take the entire revealed word of God until my coming, Jesus says, until the New Testament, You can sum it up in a word, love. We are called to love God and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. And everything he said hangs on that and everything in the Old Testament is comprehended by that. So let's look at point one uh, briefly together as we sort of set this up. I mean, Paul's whole point is this. Love is the sine qua non. Okay, the first point is the sine qua non of love. Okay, that's a Latin phrase that literally means the without which not. In other words, what is Paul saying? He's saying you can have everything, every single gift, but if you don't have love, you you literally have nothing in God's economy. Nothing. It's the sine qua non. It is it, okay? If we don't have love, we have nothing. Let's just march through a few of these that Paul mentions. He starts with tongues. He says you can can speak in the tongues of men and angels, and what he's here saying is he's both referring uh, to heavenly tongues that God gives us, Everything from prayer language to speaking in languages that we don't even know, but that God gives us to communicate the gospel or to make people sit up and go, whoa, what's happening here? God's speaking in a language to me that this person doesn't even understand. But he's also probably talking about just knowing human languages. You can have the utmost elegance, rhetorically, oratorically, divine in human language. You can be an absolute master. Um, and he probably starts here because the Corinthians spoke in tongues a lot, okay? They were really proud about that. And they didn't do it often to edify, which is the point of the gifts. Um, and so he starts with that, and he says, you can have eloquence galore, but without love, how much is it worth? Zero. It's just sounds, and in fact, it's annoying sounds, like a cymbal clapping. Not conveying any sort of information, really. Just, just in my face, it's worse than worthless. If there's no love. And then he moves on to prophecy, which almost certainly includes both forthtelling, telling things that are unknown that God gives to us, but also, uh, excuse me, foretelling, but also forthtelling, telling proclaiming the good news of the gospel and the, excuse me, and the revealed truths of God. Um, you can have basically, he says, all knowledge, all comprehension, again, both human and divine. Everything there is to know in the universe, you can know, but without love, you can know those things. In fact, the more we know, if it's not rooted in love, what happens? It makes us arrogant, and Paul talks about that. And that actually pulls us away from love, which pulls us away from God, because God is love. So you can have all knowledge, all prophecy, and it's, it's worthless. J.I. Packer, um, thinking about reading this book, again, with some men in my neighborhood. In his book, Knowing God, it's a classic. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. One of the things he talks about early in the book is the difference that a lot of us have heard, but it bears repeating, between, um, between knowing about God, knowing things about God, which it's good that we do. The Bible is full of things about God that it is his word to us. It's precious versus knowing God. And in the end, what God calls us to and the reason he came to us is to know him intimately in relationship. And there's a, an infinite difference between the two. Some people mistake knowing about God for knowing God, and Packer says no. We have to know things about God to know him, but you can know a ton about God and end up in hell, lost as a goose. And I think there are a lot of people that know a lot about God in the church, um, but they don't know God. C.S. Lewis uses the the illustration of, he walked into a, a barn one day and saw Uh, a light beam coming through the roof, a a slat of light. And he said, man, you can see all sorts of things in the air that the light illuminates. Think about knowing about God, all sorts of things. But there's a difference between looking along that light beam, looking at it rather, and then stepping into its light. You experience its warmth. It blinds you. You're feeling it, okay? And I'm not saying knowing God is a feeling, okay? It produces feelings, but it's an experience of actually being in a relationship with the living God. Okay, Um, so Paul's talking about knowing lots about God and knowing everything that you can know. And he says it's worthless without love. It's worthless without love. Um, And then he goes on to say something before he gets into verse four about love is patient and kind and all these things it's not. He says one last thing that's really stunning. And Austin mentioned, you know, we hear this at weddings and Kale mentioned the same exact thing. And so I think we need to pause here and just realize that actually in this context, we're used to hearing this, and so we're used to not being stunned by what Paul's saying. But this is, this is stunning, revolutionary stuff. Um, the fact that he could have said any of this. But then he gets to this. He gets to verse 3, and what does he say? He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. This is Paul's coup de grace, I think, here. Um, the fact that he's saying we can give everything to the poor. Everything, including our own lives, we can give up. And there's there's a discrepancy here between he he's either saying there's a manuscript difference. He's either saying we can deliver up our body to be burned, or in delivering up everything we have, including our body, we boast about it in a sort of not in a braggadocious way, but in a look, I've laid my life down. Okay, he's saying this is this was a touted thing in an ancient classical culture and outside the church. Um, This sort of charity. Caritas was, was, was praised. Paul's saying, not only if you do that sort of thing without love, it's worthless, which is stunning enough, but he's saying something that I think cars down into our depth. We can do that sort of thing, even that, something that looks from every angle like love, lovelessly. Okay, that's frightening. What is Paul getting at? he's getting at something both encouraging and terrifying. He's getting at the fact that God cares about your motives. He cares about what is inside, the thing that nobody sees but that produces everything. That's encouraging because we want that if there's a God who wants to know us, that he cares about who we really are, but it's also terrifying because I can change my actions, but I cannot, friends, and you cannot, friends, change your core, what's inside and Paul is strongly implying that that is what God cares about and if that isn't producing love if there's not an apple tree there there aren't going to be apples produced and if there aren't apples produced then everything else all knowledge all eloquence i missed faith all faith all faith faith is highly commended we're saved by grace through faith in Christ Paul's saying without love faith is also gains me nothing. He kind of hits like, if I can just, before we uh, get to what love looks like, point two, if I can just sort of blast through, he kind of hits every area of the church, doesn't he? And then those that are not in the church as well. So Presbyterians and Reformed types were all about knowledge, Bible types. He's saying, if you're all about knowledge without love, it's worthless. And then he kind of hits the faith bit and the tongues, and that hits the charismatic wing of the church, Right. Um, and, and without a stress on that, without love is also worthless. So he hits the Presby's and the Reformed and the Bible types. He hits the Charismatics who walk in the spirit and walk in the gifts and tongues and knowledge and prophecy and faith. And he's saying, we can focus on that in the church. We often do. Those things are often our foci. Knowledge, faith, prophecy, gifts. Um, but then he... Uh, He's talking about a love that in the Greek, so in the Greek, I think, you know, we have essentially one word for love, love. I love chocolate, and I love my wife, and that's, those are two different things, but it's the same word in English, so it's a shame. It's a bit of a poverty aspect of our language, but in the Greek, as some of you know, there are four words, there are four words for love, friendship love, a storge, and affection love for someone that I've known for a long time. Um, a deep affectionate bond. There's eros, there's a sexual and erotic love. Um, and then there's agape. And agape is a love that we can have for one another, but it really only comes through God, and it's the love that God has for us. That's the, that's the Greek word Paul's using here that's translated into our English love, agape. And he's saying if we don't love with agape love, everything we do is totally without merit. It gains us nothing. It's worthless. It's worse than worthless. Now, that presents a huge problem, because in our, even for the outsider, for, the, for us in the church, but also for the outsider, because we, we don't want something for nothing. Um, Non-Christians, uh, quoting Philip Reichen here, uh, will often say, or actually quoting Joseph Pieper, he's a, he's a, a, um, a Roman Catholic uh, uh, Thomist theologian, he says, I don't want anything for nothing, is what often we will say. In this world, we want to earn our keep. And we want people to deserve our love and we want to deserve their love. And agape love says no. Agape love is totally unmerited, undeserved. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche said, people addicted to honor are resistant to being loved. They're resistant to being loved um, in this way, let me add. Uh, C.S. Lewis, unearned, undeserved love, the kind that we need, we need this love more than anything. Paul says without it, we're worthless. If we don't receive it, and there's the key I'm going to drive into, and if we don't let it flow out from us, everything we do in life is without point. I think of Macbeth and Shakespeare. Um, life is a tale told by an idiot uh, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what Paul is saying here in his own words about life without this kind of love, okay? No matter how gifted we are. Um, but Lewis goes on to say, we want to be loved for our cleverness, for our beauty, our generosity, our fairness, and our usefulness. And we love others because of these things as well. But Paul says, no, this is a different kind of love. Um, so our hearts, God cares about our hearts. They need to produce this kind of love. But don't just think it's, it's just the heart. The heart produces action. And to underscore that, there are at least 15 verbs in this short text that Austin read in 1 Corinthians 13 each, sing, each single descriptor of love here is a verb, even if it's not translated that way. So like verse 4, love is kind, ought maybe to be better translated, love shows kindness. They're all verbs. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that love does. I think that's a, a book by Bob, uh, Bob Goff. Love does. Um, but it does because, because it's, it's an apple tree. The apples are the does, but it comes from something that we cannot touch on our own, okay? So that's both the good and the terrifying news. That's, so that, that's the first point, too, the sine qua non of love. Without love, nothing else matters. It's absolutely necessary, as Paul's saying. Okay, so what does love look like? What does love look like? Let's spend some time here. Um, so Paul starts in verse four after that section. He says, love is patient and kind. That's his duo that he starts off with. What does it look like? It's patient and it's kind. And one commentator says, this is both the passive and the active side of love. It's patient. It's, the word there really means long-suffering. Love suffers long. That's a lot more, I, would, I want to say, weighty than patient. Um, it's good at suffering long because it's loving someone else. It can suffer long. Um, but, so that's the passive side, but the active side is that it's kind. So let me... Um, let me read Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume, Paul says in another book to the Romans, on the, kind, on his, on the riches of his kindness, excuse me, and forbearance and patience. You notice those words, kindness and patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is what? Meant to lead you to repentance. Who is more long-suffering than God? The whole Old Testament is a picture of God's long-suffering nature. Waiting and waiting and coming to his people time and time again, appealing to them. I am the only thing that is not a broken cistern. You're going after all these things that they are leaky, and, but I am the fountain of living waters come to me. And yet again and again, they and we go for other stuff. We're idol factories, John Calvin. We're constantly producing other things that we want to chase after and cling to. Um, back to patient. Again, the King, the King James has long suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 nine. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why is God patient or long-suffering toward you and toward me and toward the world? Check this out. Not wishing, here's why he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What a great verse. Kind, don't think nice. I hate the word nice, especially when it's applied to me. He's a nice gang. Man, I hate that word. It's evacuated of all substance. Flowers are nice. I don't want to be nice. Um, kind is robust. it's full of virtue, and it points to our Lord. God is kind. He's kind because he's love. I think about, when we want to know what God is like, we go to Jesus, and Jesus shows us the very heart of God, in His face, in His actions. He loved children they tried to keep the kids from him cuz back in the day like we think we, kids have always been cute but now we put a premium on them that back in the day they didn't they they were expected to basically be quiet and know their place okay and there's still a place for that i think there's more of a place for that than we realize today right and we need to inculcate some of that into our children they think they rule the roost and that's not good but what did jesus do man he cleared off those that were trying to keep the kids from him Man, when you're a leader, you can get so full of your own sense of self-importance. Jesus was the opposite. He was kind. He cleared off the barriers, and he said, and he just, he just invited, he beckoned the kids, come. He opened his arms out wide, and he, they piled into his lap. And he, it says that he embraced them, he touched them, he loved them, he spoke to them, he taught them. He gave them pride of place. And then he honored them by saying, hey, if you're not like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. What are kids good at? Totally receiving. Anything and everything. Always asking. That's what God says he wants us to be like. And unless we're like that, we can't come. But he's also kind to sinners. Jesus loved spending times with people that others shunned because they were so afraid of their own reputation and of getting dirty. And Jesus said, come on. He was kind. He is kind to the child and kind to the sinner. Um, So that's that. Now a litany of what? Love does not do, and Paul gets into it. Love does not envy. Let's try to let's try to um, jam through some of these. It doesn't envy; it's content. Envy is totally focused on. It seems like it's outward focused because it's looking at what other people have and wanting it instead. But it's really because you're so self focused. I deserve that. And envy kind of wishes other people. It hates others, and it kind of it wishes them harm. And I won't even say it wishes them dead in a sense. If you were dead, then I could have what you have. Love is the opposite. Love says to people, as, again, Joseph uh, Pieper says somewhere it's, uh, in his book, Faith, Hope, and Love, love says to people, it is good that you exist. Envy says the opposite. It's not good and I should get your stuff. Envy is self-focused. Um, love doesn't boast. The, the word here really means Windbag. We've all met those kind of people. I can be that way at times, a windbag full of wind. And what am I? I'm just kind of blowing out nonsensical ravings, you know? But I'm full of myself. Brian Regan, he, uh, he yeah, you know where I'm going with this. And Paul's so pleased right now. It's his favorite comedian. I wish Paul were up here because he does a much better Regan. But he has that great me monster character. He's a comedian, and he, he talks about the me monster. We've all met them. Some of us are them or have been them in the past. But um, he talks about how he, he's developed this like ultimate, his fantasy is that he would have this trump card of walking on the moon because people just excel. Sometimes the Mii Monster will get into a crowd and will start working the crowd and they gather around him he starts, and people are kind of telling stories and then he one-ups them and he's like, man, don't ever tell a two wisdom tooth story. Like, hey, I got two wisdom teeth out. It, it, it hurts so bad. He's like, because the four wisdom tooth guy, the me Monster, he's gonna cut you off at the pass with his, and his four wisdom tooth tail. You got two out. Let me tell you, I'm gonna one-up you. I got four out, and man, it was way worse. They were like all wrapped around my, and then he goes into talking about, how oh, yeah, and he takes the crowd over, and I was, I was uh, I, on this huge business trip, and I had my Porsche, my BMW, and I was on the Autobahn, and I was driving, and, and all this business, and he just goes, and he, he's, he's just like devouring people's attention, and he's really just like this black hole that's just so, uh, sucking all people's attention and love into himself, okay? And so his... His uh, fantasy is that he would have the ultimate one-upper. This guy's bragging about all this business and all these cars and these houses that he has and Capri and all this. And he just talks about like, I too was driving in my lunar rover on the moon in the sea of tranquility. You know, as he's like casually eating chips, it's like shuts the guy up. But the me monster, man, the windbag, that's what Paul says love is not. Love doesn't boast like that. And then he follows it with something similar, which is interesting. He says, love's not arrogant. Paul's not done. So windbag, this one means puffed up, though, as opposed to windbag, self-focused. Again, not love or arrogance is full of itself. It cares for itself. And guys, check this out. The Trinity is the opposite. God is the triune God. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father is constantly looking to the Son the Son to the Father, and the Spirit to both. And they are mutually looking outward and loving one another. And that is why anything exists at all. And Jonathan Edwards, again, writes in his great, he has a question, which leads to a book, and it's called, The Ends for Which God Created the World. Why did God create anything? If he's totally self-sufficient, why did he create anything? And his point is, not out of need, but out of his fullness, because he is constantly loving his persons within himself, and he, out of the fullness of who he is, he's a fountain. The creation is like an overflow of God's wealth of love and being, and He and he's inviting us through salvation into that. That's why he made us, okay? But not love is the opposite of that. He's, Paul says love isn't rude. Sometimes I convince myself that I'm being frank, but Robin lovingly helps me see a lot of times and has in this past 12 years of marriage. I used to kind of take pride in the fact that I'm direct, I'm frank, I say it like it is. But actually, I often hurt people when I do that and I'm really just being rude. I'm really just being rude. Um, this actually doesn't just mean rude. It can also mean um, to act shamefully, disgracefully, or indecently. Love cares about the others. It, it isn't rude. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't ever do anything shameful. Love doesn't insist on its own way, Paul says. I think of immediately, I think of, hey, I love Mickey Blue Eyes. I love myself some Frank Sinatra. But his My Way song, I did it my way, a great song, but it's really the anthem of hell. Sorry, Frank. I said that pretty straightforwardly, didn't I? It is the anthem of hell. No matter what, no matter what occurred, I stuck to my way. But Paul says love doesn't insist on its way. Why? It's outward focused. It's caring for others, constantly looking to meet the need of others. It's not irritable. It's not touchy is what, the word, is what that means. Um, and I thought about this a little bit. And I think that, so it's not touchy. You know, you can be really, t- people can be touchy. I can be touchy. Oftentimes, so one thing I think of is, that's helped us a lot in our marriage is that, uh, Paul David Tripp has a bottle of water that's totally full, and he takes the cap off, and he shakes it just barely. And water comes out, of course, on his hand and on the ground. And he says, why did the water come out? One of those questions that makes you feel dumb. It came out because it was full of water. And when it gets shaken, when something full of water gets shaken just a little bit, what it's full of comes out. And so when we're touchy, I think a lot of times it can show what's really down in there. And when pressure is applied to something and there's a wound underneath the skin, that we can get, ah, we can get touchy. And, uh, of course, I'm not just speaking physically, I'm speaking spiritually and emotionally. But I think a lot of times when we're touchy, it points to the fact that we aren't well underneath. We haven't, there hasn't been a healing and a grounding in the unearnable, undeserved never leaving us love of God. And that creates, when we haven't received that, we are scared and we are angry and we are touchy. But love gives out freely because freely it has received. And it's not touchy and it's not irritable. Um, Phil Riken makes the point that we're usually irritated over small things, how people eat, what they talk about. My sister always used to, stop smacking uh, when we would grow up. The way they love my sister, the way they walk across the garden, um, but irritation comes from pride and ends in hatred. Paul tells us that it's the antithesis of love. It's not merely a way of complaining, therefore, but actually a way of hating. Reichen goes on to call irritability, quoting somebody else, "anger's trigger finger." F- finger, excuse me. Irritability is anger's trigger finger. Um, it begins looking for faults. Looking for the irritating person to fall. Love is not resentful. This one is huge. They're all essential because they're in the word and they're, they're essential for us. But this one, I think Paul pours, he's kind of poured all this into this right here. What does he say? It's not resentful. Literally, what does that mean? It keeps no record. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is an accounting word. We have a number of accountants in here, uh, an impressive amount for such a small church. He's not, love doesn't do this, you wronged me, check, you wronged me, that person wronged me. It has a, a list of, I think a Billy, is it Billy Madison where that guy keeps, uh, is it Steve Buscemi, keeps the, the list of, or yeah, or, or uh, anyway, one of, those, one of those shows. He keeps a list of people that have wronged him in his life since high school on, in like, on a wall. And uh, we can do that. We can remember for weeks, months, and years how we've been, hey, truly wronged. But uh, love doesn't keep that kind of accounting. It doesn't keep that kind of accounting. Um, It doesn't write those things down and it doesn't remember. Can I say, this is one of the chief ways that we can know if we are a child of God. If we have received the unearned, undeserved love of God and we give it out. If we cannot forgive, and again, things truly done to us that are wrong. It means most likely that we have not received the true forgiveness of God through truly wronging him okay, through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus tells a parable about a, uh, the unjust steward who was give, forgiven of the master an amount that literally was worth billions, I think $4.5 billion would have been today's equivalent of what he owed. And the master was gracious and merciful and he forgave him his debt. But then the guy goes out and he chokes a guy for owing him like five or $10,000, which is a substantial amount of money. But he had not, it had not, he had not allowed the forgiveness of his master to soak down into him such that if he had it, he wouldn't have, he would have forgiven or given the guy time to pay. But Jesus says, when we don't forgive, it shows that we haven't received forgiveness. Um, and I think there are a lot of people in the church that think they are believers. And there could be someone here who aren't. I wanna, this isn't an accusation. This is a time for me as your pastor to say, would you do, would you do a self-check? Would you do a self-diagnosis? When you're with other people who think that they may be believers, who assume that they are, watch and see, can they forgive? It comes from another place. It comes from the love of God in Jesus Christ. If it's it's not humanly possible to forgive of egregious sins, we can't do it. We do naturally in our flesh, keep record of wrongs. But Christ changes that. He turns the tables over on that in forgiving us what we owed God. Okay, and I'm going to get there. Um, Jesus said on the cross, didn't he, Father, forgive them? As we were crucifying him, as he was hanging there for our sins. And if you say, hey, I wasn't there, I didn't. Yes, but he hung there for your sins, if indeed you look to him and hide in him. And he gladly did it. And he said, forgive them, Father. And because the Father heard the Son, here you stand forgiven. Or here you sit able to receive and to walk into the forgiveness of God if you haven't done that yet. It's open for you. Um, Paul says in the next Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If we have received the forgiveness of God in Christ freely, we will pass that message on because we've digested it and owned it For ourselves we can't hold anything against anyone because we've been forgiven um and in deliverance when you see people delivered of strongholds of sin the the main thing that keeps people from getting healed and freed is is holding on to unforgiveness i've seen it many times and i imagine i'll see it many more times it's powerful stuff so it's a diagnosis paul's going through here okay Um, It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Lewis Smead says, we will enjoy our disgust so much that we would be furious were were we to be deprived of it, okay? And being disgusted over someone, especially when you knew they were gonna fall and they did, by golly, and it makes you feel so much better, that's a tasty morsel in my mouth, isn't it? Man, love doesn't do that. It wants people to do well. It wants people to recover because it's seen how it was in the depths of despond. And God lifted it out through no good of itself and placed it on a firm ground. Okay? Love, rejo- Love gen- this is one of the hardest things to do. I'm bad at it. Love genuinely rejoices when pe- other people do well, especially in areas you're not doing well in, competitors maybe. It genuinely rejoices. What do all these things have in common? They are, as Augustine, the church, the fourth and fifth century church father said, I've used this phrase before, it's Latin, they are incurvatus say. they are curved in on themselves. We, in our flesh, born opposed to God, are curved in on ourselves. We are the bride at every wedding. We are the corpse at every funeral. The planets revolve around us. Man, if I had a nickel for every time my mom said, hey, the world doesn't revolve around you, I'd be a rich, I'd have at least a couple hundred bucks in my pocket. Um, it's I am not the great I am it's either he is God on his throne and we revolve around him and so do all things or we think that others and the world revolves around us Um, it's one or the other and what Genesis 3 tells us is we're all born into the other we were made to revolve around God and to love him and to acknowledge him as the center of all things but we want to sit on the throne because of our sin and so love doesn't spring from our hearts, and that's a problem, okay? Shirley MacLaine once told the Washington Post, the only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only person you really dress is yourself. The only thing you have Uh, is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Isn't that so sad, but honest? That's us in our flesh. But then Paul hits this wonderful litany, which we're gonna have to skim over um, in verse seven. It's power packed here. Love bears all things. Think about a mother with her infant children and with her children, period. Enough said, okay? Love bears all things. It believes all things. Is he saying love just believes anything and everything? It's fideistic. It just needs faith and no reason, no, no, no reasons. It's credulous. No, he's not, he's not saying that's what love is. It believes the best about other people. Man, when I, I give myself a ton of credit I am very three-dimensional and complex. This is one point Keller makes so well over and over again. Tim Keller, preacher up in New York. But when other people mess up and cross me, or maybe I even think they have, I am very quick to not give them the benefit of the doubt. I two-dimensionalize them. Thomas Nagel, the uh, NYU atheist, or agnostic NYU uh, professor, philosopher, said that in his book, uh, Equality and Partiality, Waking up to the world in the way it really is and becoming a more loving, I don't think he uses that phrase, person. Part of that is to see that every, all the 7 billion people in the world are just as important as I am. They're worth just as much. They're just as complex. They have stories that are different from mine that are just as complicated. And they have personalities and character and a and a past and a present and a future that's every bit as important and complex as mine to 3 dimensionalize people. Um, it believes, and that blew me away when I read it, and it's still something I chew on, but it believes the best about people. It gives them the benefit of the doubt. I'm so guilty there, but that's what love does. It hopes all things. It's forward, hope is forward-leaning. When, what hope does is it, it's, when its water rises and its boat lifts All the boats around it lift. Hope is a buoyant force. Um, Hope is something given to us by the timeline of God's salvation history. We take for granted the fact that we are in Christ, headed somewhere, that his kingdom is coming, and that this is not as good as it gets. That's one of the things we celebrate at the table. We remember his death, what? Until he comes again. We are going to sit down at the feast, and he's going to wipe the tears from our eyes, and the party is going to start and we'll realize that everything heretofore has been the cover to take a page from Lewis and the title page all of history and then the real story is going to start and every page is going to be better than the one before it but we take that for granted but that that forward linear trajectory in history where things end well in Christ no matter how hard they are now that's not common the greeks for instance had a circular view of history there was no progress There was no hope, which is why they write such darn good tragedies. It's not an accident. Their worldview was tragic. But love hopes. It is headed somewhere because it went somewhere for us on the cross, okay? And I'll get there. Love endures all things. It's not marshmallowy. It's diamond hard. Solomon said love is stronger than the grave. You could give all that you have in exchange for love to try to buy it. The 80s movie tells us, you can't buy me love, right? I mean, come on, great movie. Love cannot be bought. It endures everything. It bears everything. It will never fail. All else will fade away, even knowledge, even faith, because we will see him face to face. But then we will truly love as we are loved. We will know as we have been known. Love remains. It's why we exist. Um, The seven things Paul said about love, Um, excuse me, the seven things Paul said love is not all had one thing in common. They were curved inward. But again, love is outward focused and it lays its life down for its enemy. Paul personifies love here. He gives personal characteristics to it um, because he's painting a portrait of a person and the person is Jesus Christ. Um, There's a film called Last of the Mohicans and some of you may have seen it. It's based on a book by James, James Fenimore Cooper And there's a character in it called Hawkeye, who's uh, the white man but raised by Native Americans. And he's sort of the hero. And he has a love interest, Clara. And there's an enemy that's in the British forces. His name's Duncan. And he wants to be loved by Clara. But Clara loves Hawkeye. And there's this scene where um, Duncan somehow knows uh, the language of the Indians. And the Indians have captured Clara. And so you have Clara there, and she's captured by the Indians, and you have Hawkeye who comes to find her, and you have Duncan. And Duncan loves Clara, and he hates Hawkeye. Hawkeye Hawkeye's his rival and his nemesis. And he's 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 against the British anyway. So in every way, Hawkeye is his enemy. But Duncan knows the language. He knows English, and he knows the Indian language. And so he's bartering for Clara's release. And Hawkeye's like, hey, me for her, me for her. Perfect chance for Duncan to... Say, okay, board of the deal. And then uh, Hawkeye goes to the flames and Duncan leaves with the lady. So he's doing that and he's talking in a language that none of us can understand. A Native American and the Native Americans finally say, fine, fine, fine. So Hawkeye gets ready to get and they go past Hawkeye and they take Duncan. And Hawkeye's like, whoa, 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 whoa what's happening? They take Duncan, they tie him up faster than you can say, I don't know what. And they light the flames under him. And they just push Claire and Hawkeye out of the camp, and they're both astonished. What Duncan has done is he has given his life for his enemy. He stepped in, and he gave his life. It's the most powerful scene in the movie. Y'all, Christ did this for us on an infinitely greater scale. We are the reason he hung on that cross. We hated him. We wanted nothing but our own way. Everything that's the opposite of what Paul's been talking about was what made me tick. And yet he gladly stepped in our place and took the hit as our shield for us. And what Paul is saying is, this is love. And until we look to him and see what he's done for us by faith and receive literally his own person, his spirit into us, and that sinks down down and possesses our hearts that's what belief is it's knowing God by looking to Jesus Christ and how much he loves you and what he's done for you that you cannot do for yourself until that happens we can't love but when that happens his love for you that made everything right between you and God he said will begin to flow out of you like a fountain it's him it's him in you and your life will begin to look more and more like that. So Jesus loved us this way, not just in his death, but in his life. And his death was the consummation of that love. And he loves us now, he invites us now into that love, into his own life and heart, to know God in Christ. That's the point of everything. That's why we're here. And then to invite others to know him too. Come, you've got to know this God that gave, that made, he made a way for us to know him by stepping in our place and taking our place. Come. Um, First John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, we are children. we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And what we gaze at now shapes us. And what Paul is basically saying is that as we gaze at the gospel, at Christ living for us and dying for us, it will go deeper and deeper and deeper in. And that love that transforms us and makes a way for us to know God and to be known will flow out from us to others, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our spouses, to our children, to our enemies. It's a miracle. That apple tree, we can't conjure it up. It's something that Christ has earned and Christ offers freely. Um, so how can we love, briefly in, in, in closing down, um, Henry Drummond, So first of all, by gazing at Jesus, that's it. In myriad ways, together here, sitting under the preached word, singing about the the verities of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, reading his word, carving out time, guys. I will say it over and over and over again until I breathe my last. Carving out time to look into the mirror of his word and to know what I am like and what God is like through that mirror, the word. It's irreplaceable. Please find time alone and in community, to read the word daily, to talk to him in prayer, to be in community, to avail ourselves of the regular means of grace, to share our faith. That's part of what makes us to grow. To see people that have come to Christ this year has been one of the most enlivening, encouraging things in my life. Share your faith. It is the best thing that has ever happened to any of us. It is loving. It is loving to do so, and it will drive that penny down deeper, Henry Drummond said, souls are made sweet. Listen to this, guys. A couple quotes and we're done. Souls are made sweet, not by taking the acid fluids out, but by putting something in. Do you get that? So don't don't try to, okay, how do I do this? How do I love? Don't try to just take all the muck out. No, rather, it's by putting something in, a great love, a new spirit, the spirit of Christ. Christ, the spirit of Christ, interpenetrating ours, sweetens, purifies and transforms all. Think about a dot of ink that goes into water and just absolutely um, infuses the whole thing. Again, the Tom- Thomas Chalmers, Scottish 19th century pastor, his title of his sermon, best title of any sermon ever, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsive power of an affection for God in Christ as we gaze on his beauty. Let's do it together. Let's do it alone with God in our closet, in our car, praying, reading, living lives of love as we let, hey, I'm going back to the gifts next week for the next couple weeks. As we go back to looking at the gifts that we truly wanna eagerly pursue together, understanding that it's love that binds us, it's, lo- it's because of love that they exist at all. It's because of love that we exist at all. Using them not to be a windbag or puffed up, but rather to go low and to edify, to fortify, to build up one another. To receive his love and to give it out to one another and to a watching world who will know that Jesus is the Lord by the way that we love each other. Can I say I've seen that in our body increasingly? And can I say how encouraged I am? This is not a lecture, this is a proclamation of what Paul says. And I'm greatly encouraged as I look out at you. Keep on. Keep on gazing at Christ. Um, That's it. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this incomparable word. It, uh, It seemed presumptuous to preach it, and I only did it because you called me to. I thank you for equipping us for that which you call us to. I thank you... More importantly, for your love. Forgiving your life is a ransom for many. For knowing your own and calling each of us to yourself. And those who are not yet, you are calling them, Lord. If anyone here knows that, feels that, thinks that may be the case, Lord God, would they respond. I beg you, that they would come into you to know Your love that is peerless, that is the reason for life. It's the reason that you made us. It's the missing piece. We thank you. The Romans couldn't conceive of gods and a religion that involved gods who loved. But Paul tells us something astonishing, which is what the gospel is, which is that you so loved us that you laid your life down for us and took it up again. Um, It is the message we have to preach to ourselves, to one another, to a dark and weary world. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you for being a God of love. Uh, We see your face in Christ. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord, he took the bread and he broke it